Hey guys, if you are struggling to stay focused, I get it. With everything that's going on in the world right now, it feels a little bit like Groundhog's Day. The kids are always here, and so there is no difference between Monday and Saturday. And it's one of those reasons that I want to make sure that you guys know about our Start Today brand. Start Today began with my Start Today journal. Several years ago, I came up with this product for myself that would help me to practice gratitude and to make sure that my goals were crystal clear in my mind as part of my morning routine. At the beginning of this year, I launched my priority planner, which was a way for you to take the biggest goal in your life and break it down into bite-sized pieces so that you could actually start to make traction. So if you have not checked them out yet, oh my gosh, go to starttoday.com and check out our newest line available in Target stores all over the US and of course at target.com. If you know that right now you need to stay on task, you need to stay on target, please check out these products. I think that you will love them as much as I do. Starttoday.com or target.com to start today the right way. If you're willing to work hard and to be available for your clients, I think you'll succeed. This episode is a fantastic one for any of you who are interested in a publishing career. Today, I'm chatting with Marcel Lyon literary agent, Kevin Lyon, who I have had the distinct pleasure of working with on all of my book sales. We are talking about everything from how to get published to what to look for in a business partner. Listen in. For people who don't already know you, will you give us your bio? Will you tell us a bit about your career? So I'm a partner and agent at Marshall Lyon Literary Agency. I've been in the publishing business for what feels like 100 years on some days. I started out on the distribution and wholesaling side of the business and did that for about 17 or 18 years, which meant I, I basically worked for a company that bought lots of books for big customers like back in the day, Price Club, and then it became Costco, Sam's, BJ's, those kinds of accounts. We did the Borders mass market program when Borders was around and kicking um, and that kind of thing. And I ran the buying department, which meant I met with publishers and they called on us about buying their books. Um, And we were one of the biggest buyers of books in the country. So I really got to know a lot of people on the sales side of publishing. When that company had its own troubles and I left, I decided to go into agenting after meeting um, a well-known agent at the Frankfurt Book Fair and decided to give it a try. And it really was learning the publishing business from a completely different vantage point, really at the beginning of the publishing process versus I was at that time working more at the end of the publishing process. And I started, I did that probably, it's been 10 or 11 years that I worked at the Dykstra Agency. And that's where I met Jill Marshall, who is my my partner now. So after working there for a couple years as an independent contractor, we decided to go out on our own. 
and we started our own agency back in 2009. And it was the best thing we've ever done is being in business for myself. My, my only regret is that I didn't do it sooner. Uh, I find this really interesting. So I am in, from the very beginning of starting my own company, I have always worked alone. I have a staff, obviously, but I've never had a partner. Um, so I'm really interested to hear, how do you navigate that? Was that scary to decide to do? What level of trust do you have to have in that person? Just all the things that, that you can remember about starting that partnership and how it has evolved over time. We're alike in many ways and very different in others. So um, we complemented each other. So the things that Jill would really get neurotic about weren't things that I paid as close attention to. So she's the one that knows every time a tax rule changes that impacts our clients. <laughs> she like actually goes to the IRS website and checks this stuff. And I, it doesn't even dawn on me until you know somebody's telling me I have to do it. She is the one that, you know, the moment a payment comes in, we're, we're putting, paying a client. She's just very neurotic about um, certain details. And I am um, stronger in other areas. So we complemented each other really well in terms of how we work together. And we're both pretty easygoing when it came to the day-to-day -day flow of client issues and that kind of thing. We also work on our own list. So our paths cross on the business stuff, setting up the website, doing the tax stuff, all of the, the legal boxes that you have to check and take care of when you set up a business. But when it came to client work, we're very independent. We both have our own lists, but what we've always done is um, we've read for each other and shared insight on um, clients' work. We look at sublists, we advise on sublists, we advise on pitch letters, um, and we just share stories of an issue that we've stumbled across with a client or a publisher and seek advice. And we both seem to complement each other on the way we look at things. And sometimes, you know, all if she's got to write a thorny email to a publisher regarding a client issue, she'll have me look at it first yeah. and versa. So we do a lot of that kind of thing together. I mean, in all of the years that we've worked together, I can't think of more than like two times where there was even a moment of tension. Mm. Part of that is we don't work in the same office. Yes. <laughs> we, do, we do spend a lot of time on the phone together. But they're just, we're both very open about issues. And if something's bugging us, we say it. And um, neither one of us are willing to trip up the business in any way over something that is, you know, not of consequence. So literally in all those years, there's probably been two or three moments where it was, you know, we even acknowledged that we disagreed on the way forward on something. And um, then we worked it out. I like having the partner. I like having someone who compliments me in areas where I may not be as strong and vice versa. Mm. I feel like it sort of helps us fill in the gaps in the business. I had first heard, it's, it's worth saying because people listening, I did not establish that you are my literary agent, which is how I know you. So thank you. <laughs> thank you for sitting in on this podcast. I thought it would be really helpful to women who are interested in the industry, interested in writing, sort of want to get a perspective. Um, I first became aware of you because I kept seeing your name at the end of my favorite books. 
So um, you laugh, but you know it's true. Uh, so yeah. I would finish something by Jen Probst or, or you know, Jennifer L. Armentrout or uh, Laura Kay. I would finish one of their books, and they would always say, thank you so much to my agent, Kevin Lyon, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, who is this guy? Like, who is this Kevin Lyon? <laughs> and then I went to an RT years ago. And for those of you who aren't in publishing, RT is a convention. Is it a convention? It, more than a conference, right? So yeah. it's a convention for people who love romance novels. And I am a huge romance nerd. And I'm at this thing. And I go sit down to hear. I don't even remember what the topic was on. But you were on the panel. And they introduced you. And I was like, oh, my God. That that's, that's a girl. guy, but it's you. It's You're not a guy. Um, yeah. And I remember just sitting in awe of how professional and quite honestly badass you are sitting up there with your, your great outfit. You know, too, like you go to these conventions and it's people are a little bit of every kind of person. They might be dressed like a pirate wench or wearing a T-shirt. <laughs> you know it's true. And you, especially I, at RT. Yeah. Yes, especially at RT. And so I just was so admiring of the wisdom that you shared. And I remember sitting in that audience thinking, oh my gosh, what would it be like if Kevin Lyon was your agent? And I don't even know that I've ever told you that oh. I thought that's the ultimate. Like, that's, that's where I got to be. I got to be the person that has her as an agent. And then, like, every dream I've ever had in my life, I backed up from there. So if your goal is to have Kevin as an agent, how do you get her? Well, you get her by you have to establish yourself. You have to have a platform. You have to, um, you know, I made up whatever list. And when I finally felt like I had checked those boxes off, I sent you an email. And the I rest, remember. The rest it's is very history. Very <laughs> Um so I think uh, what I would love to hear, I'm sure you've answered this question a million times at conferences and conventions in the course of your career, but if someone's listening, they've always wanted to write a book, uh, what is the advice you would give them? First off, we're assuming they've written the book, right? Yeah. So they've done Good all point. the heavy lifting, which you know as well as anyone what that means. That's yep. a huge endeavor. So that's and a first. Let's just pause there for one second because that is a great piece of advice. You want to um, have your first book come out, you have to actually write it first. Yeah, if that you don't, usually... Yeah, <laughs> if, you don't have a, if you don't have a career to back it up, uh, if you don't have a bunch of other books, nobody is talking to you in this day and age if you don't have a finished manuscript. Right. Yeah. Right. Great. And, great and, point. and to get to that point, um, not only does it need to be finished with the end, but you need to, um, avail yourself of anybody who you trust as a reader and hopefully people who are in the business in some way, whether it's another author friend or someone that you feel might have a keen eye to give your manuscript a read. Um, you can also uh, hire a professional editor. It's not necessary, but there are many wonderful professional editors out there that can help you polish the manuscript. Yes. And some are better than others, obviously. It's not cheap. And I, I've counseled um, authors before that you look at it like taking a writing class. I mean, yeah. you have to look at the expenditure that way, that you will walk away from that experience, hopefully, a stronger writer. Y'all, we are doing a community-wide challenge and it's totally free and I am challenging you to join us. 
It's called Next 90 Days, as in how can we be intentional, thoughtful leaders for the next 90 days? We're going to need our community. We're going to need accountability more than ever. So I want you to head over to thehollisco.com slash next 90. That's thehollisco.com slash N-E-X-T nine zero and join us. Every single week, Dave and I will be teaching on a different topic, things like perspective or reaching for joy or dealing with anxiety in these crazy times. We are going to give you so many free resources and surround you with community. When we did this at the end of last year, we had 650,000 people sign up and we feel like it can be bigger than ever. Come together in a community of like-minded people and let's learn how to choose our mindset no matter what is happening in the world around us. Yeah, I have, um, even with the last, the nonfiction that we've just um, gotten a deal on, even, what book is this, book six or book seven, even that I'm using an editor to um, work on the proposal with me, to work on the actual copy that I've written, and um, that was an incredible opportunity for me, and I do not think it would have been so incredible if Aaron hadn't helped me craft it and get it to the place where it was as good as it could be. So even even those of us who are in the business, I mean, my hope is always that every thing I'm working on is better than the one before it. Um, you should never get out of a place of wanting a coach. Yes, it's expensive, but I think if they're doing their job and it's someone good, that that's going to come back to you in the sell of the book. Right, I agree. And the other thing I always tell new writers is join uh, an organiza- a writing organization mm-hmm. like RWA, or if you're writing kids' books, there's various children's writers' organizations. Um, a, a, writing, uh, a writing group is a good thing where you can share your manuscript within the writing group. But it does, it helps give you neutral eyes. Your mother, or your sister, or your best friend are always not always the best option for that Mm. to, to give your manuscript a read. And then once you feel like it's ready, 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 um, then you begin, um, to dive into the query process. And the first step on that is looking at agents that love the type of, uh, work that you're writing. So for, in your case, for example, I, I'm a big fan of romance and a lot of my clients, are um, romance writers. I'm also a huge fan of women's fiction and historical fiction in particular. And a lot of my clients fall into that genre. So if you're reading books like you were, mm-hmm. um, you see an agent's name at the end, that's absolutely a great way to do it. And if you start poking around on the internet, there's lots of resources for literary agents that will list them and then you can start doing your homework on individual agents and what they're Yeah, I think that is a really great piece of advice for anything that you're wanting to get into that you're not super familiar with. You better do your research. You better know because honestly, before um, I got into this world, I had no idea that literary agents specialize in certain types of books. I thought all lit agents repped all books. Um, And even the stuff that you and I have done together, there are some different styles that we've had to go, well, shoot, we should maybe talk to someone about this because this is a different type of book. So doing your research, knowing who you're reaching out to, that you're not reaching out to the wrong person at that agency because you're already setting yourself up for failure. 
Um, and I think, uh, you tell me if I'm wrong, but most, if you go on to literary agencies, most of the time they'll tell you, we are currently accepting query letters. We are not accepting, or we're accepting in these specific areas. So you don't just sort of bull in a china shop your way through the door and end up ticking everybody off before you've even gotten a word out of your mouth. Right, or you, you'll just get shut down. This is something, too, that's interesting, um, is the idea of when you own your own business, you make your own rules. I think most people would assume, myself included, that all literary agents live in New York, and you are um, hanging out at your home with your dogs in San Diego. So yeah, there's something really fact, cool about making your own rules. It's true, and so many of um, the Agents that are doing a lot of deals, if you look at the, you know, sort of top deal makers, many of them are not in New York anymore. Mm -hmm. um, they're all over. We have a huge group of agents in San Diego uh, that we, a bunch of them get together regularly and that kind of thing. I know there is a number in Denver. They're, they're all over now. Um, and I, I think really in this business, you need a phone and you need a computer yeah. and then you're set. Totally. You, at the end of the day, I mean, maybe you, you tell me if you disagree, but I, you are in a customer-based business, a client-based business, and not everybody listening is going to be interested in publishing, but I think anyone who works in an industry or profession where you are looking out for the interests of someone else, uh, what is the advice that you would offer to someone who's coming up in that role? How have you navigated, you know, the... You're, you're in an interesting space in that you have these editors and publishers that you need in order to do your business, but then you're also trying to take care of your client. The main point probably in any business that you're in is um, if you're willing to work hard and to be available for your clients, I think you'll succeed. I just, I think for the, the number one complaint that I hear when I talk to clients that have left an agent and they're looking for new representation is, you know, there was no follow-up. I would email my agent and I wouldn't hear for days and days and days, or in some cases weeks. And, um, I was afraid to contact my agent or whatever it be. But I, I think no matter what business you're in, you're almost always in some sort of client or customer facing role of some sort that you have to, you have to be present for those clients and you have to be responsive. Yeah. Um, doesn't mean you have to respond within minutes, but you have to respond to an email or return a phone call or do the heavy lifting to get the work done that you committed to them that you would do. Um, and, I, and I think that really is what will set the mediocre agent in our business um, apart from the really great agent. It's about working hard for someone, even if you don't sell their book on yeah. the first book, as long as your client knows that you have done your darndest to sell that book, nobody's going to fault you for it in 99.9% .9 of the cases. You always get that rogue client who is going to be a problem, but then, you know, then it's better if they find somebody else. But yeah. um, that really, no matter what business you're in, I think, I honestly believe that. And I remember when I first got into this and first started in romance, frankly, the agency that I was working with didn't do any romance. And I said, I'm just going to be the best romance agent around. I'm going to learn everything I can about this industry. 
And I went out and went to every conference I could and read every submission in the slush pile at the Dykstra Agency that had anything to do with romance. Mm. And that's how I sort of got started in that area. But I, I really believe that that's true for almost any industry, whether it's real estate or any sort of sales, that if you're willing to put in the time, especially in the beginning, then I think it'll pay off. Yeah. How do you feel like the industry has shifted in the last, I mean, even since, gosh, I want to say Party Girl came out in 2014, and in my limited time here, so three years, um, I feel like, it, tell me if I'm wrong, I feel like the industry has changed so much since I started, and I'm curious where it's going in the future. It has. I think it's changed a lot. And, you know, we always say, oh, it's just gotten so much tougher, but I think we've said that every year since yeah. I started as an agent. <laughs> And it has gotten tougher because the number of publishers has consolidated. So there's fewer opportunities with a, an array of publishing imprints or presses to get a book published, mm -hmm. but they're self-publishing. Yes. So I feel like there's always that option for people if, if they decide that that's something that will work for them. I'm a success story. I'm a self-published success story. You and I would not be on this phone call. And in fact, it wasn't until I called you, I, you know, I told the story about like backing up and wanting you as an agent and party girl was seen by everybody. Every publisher turned it down. Everyone said it wouldn't sell end up self-publishing. It sells really well. And a publisher called me and said, we want to buy this book. We want to turn it into a series. And honest to God, I thought, like, I got off the phone. Yay, I'm so excited. And then I thought, oh, I can get Kevin Lyon with this. <laughs> I really, I swear, I really did. I thought, I haven't had anything that I could bring to her. I don't have any finished stuff. But if you went to a, a, a literary agent and you wanted them to represent you and you already had a deal on the table... I mean, not that like we wouldn't have been friends and you wouldn't have liked me regardless, but that's <laughs> certainly a way to get a call back. I do think that that is a strategy. It just happened for me with um, one of my Harlequin category authors, and it's happened to me um, where the other option is you get referred by a client of mine, too, if, yeah. if someone knows someone. But yeah, that definitely can help. That's a tough path. Oh for most gosh, people. totally. No, yeah. I more meant I more meant that that I am a success as a self-published author. Right, um, right. You know, it's a very valid thing, and Kevin knows. I'll tell everyone who's listening. I've been working for five years on a fiction book that is an insane concept that Kevin is <laughs> terrified of. Was so like, what? What are you writing? Why are you writing that? Um, and I feel so fine with the fact that if we send it out when it's finally done, if we send it out and nobody wants it, of course they will because it's awesome. But if nobody wants it, I'll, I will be so happy to self-publish. I will have no problem with that. The, the point is that you're supposed to want to make art and you wanna, you're supposed to want to put it out in the world. And if right. people get it, that's awesome. Good for you. But if they don't, that doesn't take away from the fact that you created something you're proud of. Right. No, I agree. And so that back to that question, how's the industry changed? That I think is one of the true evolutions in the industry in the last sort of five to seven years. Now, we had a huge explosion in self-publishing where everybody seemed to be, you know, becoming overnight millionaires when they put their book up. Yeah. That has gone away. We all know that yes. it, it definitely has settled down a lot. And you may make a buck and a half if you put your book up. Yeah. Um, but your book is still up. Yes. So 
you do have options. And I think you have to come to this deciding what is right for you. And if you're going to go with a publisher, you get a lot of benefits, but you also give up a certain degree of control. And that's just the way it is. Um, I, I think it really depends on the person and what they're publishing if it makes sense for traditional publishing. And I think that the industry has settled out, that the huge influx of self-pubbed authors that created this giant market for self-pub material has settled down and slowed down. And it is tougher for people to make a lot of money. They may make a little bit of money, but they're also going to begin to learn and hopefully get better at it. Absolutely. And there's a lot of resources out there. If you want to self-pub on how to do it well, yes. there are online classes. Some of my authors give those online classes yeah. and suggestions on how to do it. So I think that there are plenty of options for authors now, and it really depends on what they want. Um, if they want to hold a printed book in their hand in Barnes & Noble, then they should try the traditional publishing path. Yeah. If that's not important to them, then, you know, the indie publishing could certainly be an option. Doesn't Jen have a book coming out on writing? Jen Probst's book, Write Naked, it comes out in March of this year. And um, it really is an inspirational book to read about getting motivated to, to jump into this world. How cool. And uh, I can highly recommend it. Yes, Jen is, really- a, Jen is a dear friend, so let's plug the heck out of that. Everyone go buy it or pre-order it, depending on when you listen to this podcast. Um, so are there any trends right now that you see young writers following that you feel like is not really setting them up for success? People try to look at what is happening in the market right now. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, they'll try to write to that. Yes. So it is following the hottest trend or if this particular type of book is selling well and hitting the top of the New York Times list today, they're going to do something like that. We've seen it at different points um, with whatever book was sort of the current craze. The reality in the publishing business is what you're writing today if you're absolutely done, 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 and you went on submission today, odds are it wouldn't be published until towards the end of 2018. Yes. Potentially even the beginning of 2019. Yes. As Rachel painfully knows. Yes. I mean, that's, and we'll give you the date for context. So we're at the beginning of 17. And if I have a book done, finished right now and sold it right now, it would not come out till the end of 18 or beginning of 19. It is a very long process. Uh, so you're, you know, it's exactly the idea. What is trending right now will not matter. You can only write to what you think, what you love, what inspires you, what you're passionate about, not what's trending. Right. And I always tell people, write, write that book that's in your head. I mean, so many of my clients will tell me these characters are talking to me. I've got to write it down to get them out. And that I don't have characters talking to me, which is why I do what I do. And you do what you do. Yes. They can talk to me. Yes. Um, So that's the book that they need to write. Not the one that they think will sell today or that is that readers are buying today because that won't necessarily even matter or relate to what's going to be popular by the time you finish your book and then go on submission and sell your book. You've got to write what's what's burning in, yes. in you uh, because that's the one that's going to work. How important is confidence in your work as to you as an agent 
to me, like if I am your client, I mean, I am your client, but um, how important is if you're a new client, you're considering someone, just the confidence in what they're doing? Because I know so many people who want to write are terrified of their work. They think it's bad. They think it's terrible. I can't, you know, oh, I'm not sure if anyone's going to like this. Do you feel like that, hey, that's just what artists are like? Or do you think that for you it's important that someone is passionate and confident in what they've created? Well, I think being passionate about their work is maybe different than confident. Yeah, Um, that's real. When I hear confidence, I worry that someone is not going to be open to uh, feedback because the work helps be improved. But you're confident enough in that you've done the work on the manuscript. You've gotten the feedback. You're you're sending me something that isn't full of typos. So in that, I want you to be confident in your work. But knowing that there's probably room for revision and improvement almost always, whether it's from suggestions from me um, or from an editor that will edit the work. So knowing that you've done the legwork to get it ready and being confident um, and you've gotten good on it and then submitting it, I think, is definitely where you want to be. Yeah. And to be passionate about the fact that you have given it your heart and soul. That is what I'm looking for, Mm. I think, versus someone who's, you know, I get, we get these queries that frankly, we kind of laugh at. They'll be like, you know, I have your next New York Times bestseller. (laughs) They open their query or this is going to make a blockbuster of a movie and I know I can sell it kind of thing. But you'd be surprised. There's sort of that level of confidence and there's confidence that you have done your best to make this yeah. Get this manuscript ready for submission and it is ready, ready, ready. Um, but then again, I have to say there are times that people will send me a submission and then they'll get some feedback and I haven't gotten to it. It's been a couple weeks or whatever. And they'll like come to me, you know, Oh my God, I feel terrible. But would you be willing to take this slightly revised Mm. version of what I sent you two weeks ago? It's like, of course, I'm happy to take that. No problem. Yeah. So you know, that kind of thing never bothers me. As long as I haven't spent a ton of time on the older version, if you happen to have done a little bit of tweaking because you got some great feedback, then I wouldn't plan that. But if that happens to happen, it's fine. So you have two adult daughters, right? You have, they're in their 20s. Is that correct? Yes. What is the thing that you hope they have learned from you watching, you know, you've worked their entire lives, right? Yeah. I've so, always been a work on. So tell me what are the things that you hope they have gleaned from you in that experience or maybe that you know they have gleaned from you by watching this career that you've created? I hope and I believe they have become very independent, strong-willed, strong-minded um, women that know that they can support themselves always Yeah, Yeah. that they don't have to rely on a significant other or spouse Mm -hmm. to pay their bills. And Mm. I've seen um, women and friends that stepped away from working to raise children, which is admirable. And I never had the patience to do that full time, but being able to make, um, a wage that you can pay your own bills on. And in some of those cases, lives changed and couples divorce and things happen and you have to be able to support yourself potentially at some point. 
Amen. I just wanted my daughters to know that they could, do, they were more than capable of doing that. They had their own career and that it was important to them. And at this point, neither of them are married, but one's in um, medical school and one's working. And they will both, from what I can see today, always have their own career path. They both want, you know, family and kids and all that, mm-hmm. but think they've ever questioned um, having to give up one to have the other. They they believe they can have it all because they watched you. Yes, yeah. I love it. So good. So this podcast is called Deus. Deus is a platform. Deus is the place where the queen stands. Um, and and I ask everyone, uh, for lack of a better description, what is your Deus moment or your soapbox moment? If you're standing on a platform. What is the one thing that you, if you could only tell young women coming up in their careers in any industry or your own that you see them doing that you just want to shake them by the shoulders, like what's the one thing you would tell them? I think that they can have it all, that there is no need to feel that you have to sacrifice a marriage and kids if that's what you want for a career or vice versa. Mm-hmm. You, can, you can do both. If that's what you want. Yes. Uh, There's no reason that you should have to choose one over the other. And I recall when my kids were young, feeling lots of guilt when I dropped my kids off at elementary school with the moms that were hanging out and able to stay at school and help in classroom and, you know, more power to them. That hasn't changed, by the way. In 2017, I can tell you that is still a thing. (laughs) Yes. And, you know, the just the... The feeling that I, I I felt like I never really had anything in common with a lot of those women, not all, but, you know, I think everyone sort of gets into their own silos a little bit, but my good friends were other working moms. Yeah. And I guess that would be when I see women want to just sort of, you know, have children and stay at home with them. Great. If that's what you want, but realize that if you wanted both, I you believe can do it. you yes. can do it. And yeah, there are some very frazzled days and nights when you have a sick kid or, and the other thing you got to do is you got to learn how to ask for help. Yes. And that I never felt guilty about having a babysitter or a nanny because I worked hard and, you know, there's a little bit of a shuffle and women always end up doing the shuffle Yes. for whatever reason we're the organizers. Yep. And just sort of have to bite the bullet and accept that that's going to happen most of the time. Well, and I also think, um, I've talked about this a lot, uh, in other, in, in other countries in developing nations, working mom, like mommy guilt for working is not even something that you can explain. So if you talk to a mom in Ethiopia, uh, about, oh, there are women in America who have guilt because they have to work. They literally can't understand what you're saying because the ability to work in a country like that is such a blessing in their lives. It would never occur to them to have guilt about it. So that is a, um, it's a first world problem for sure. Uh, but it's also something that I don't think my mom was a working mom and I don't know that she had guilt about it. It just was what it was. Uh, right. so, so I think those, you know, people who look down on having a babysitter or having a nanny or having help, um, the difference is maybe like 
20 years ago, no, more than that, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, you were living in places where your mom lived down the street. And grandma would come help and take care of the kids, and that's not an option that we have as working moms. So the the whole thing about, you know, mommy guilt, because you have to work or because you want to work, um, frankly, is just, it, it makes me want to slam my head against the wall. Because it doesn't serve you or your children in any way. Right. And I always point out to people, um, between my husband and I, you know, we made all the major events at school or whatever, but you just learn to juggle it a bit. So we ask everyone, I ask everyone a series of questions. I just am really curious about how other awesome working women make it work. So here they are. Uh, What time do you wake up every day? Very early. (laughs) Like, Today, 4.30 in the morning, although I lay there and try and um, make myself, like, stop having my mind go a million miles yes. an hour. So I mean, we're usually up and rolling, and I'm on the road with the dogs by around 6, but yeah. I'm up and moving somewhere between 5 and 5.30 yep. most What days. I love yep. is so far, we're batting a 1,000. I get up at 5 a.m., the other interviews get up at 5 a.m., so it's a thing. If you want to know how to hustle, you want to know how to work hard, uh, part of it is not sleeping in. What is your coffee order? Pete's French Roast. I mail order it from Berkeley. Nice. It's, yes, it's the best. Are you, from, are you from the Bay Area originally, or am I making that up? No, I am from okay. the Bay Area. Okay, so, yeah. so that's a little bit of home. It is. It's yeah. a little bit of home, and I am definitely an addict. What is your workout? Well, my major workout is a power walk with my dogs mm-hmm. in, in the very early morning hours for about an hour. And then two or three days a week, I do a couple classes at the YMCA, Okay. like strength training kind of classes. Yeah. How important do you think, like, has that always been a part of your life? And how important do you think, like, physical activity has been in, like, keeping your stress level at a certain place? Oh, it's always been an important part of my life. I was a gymnast in high school. Were you really? And I, I had no idea. I was. I wasn't very good, but I was. <laughs> I was on the team. Most people on the team were a lot better than I was. But yeah, it's always, exercise has always been a huge part of my life. More, not necessarily team sports. I didn't, I never felt like I was coordinated enough at baseball or any of that kind of stuff, but I've always done individual sports. Um, So I've always, always done something pretty much either daily or multiple times a week. What is your lunchtime routine? How do you eat lunch? Well, it's a good thing you don't have me on camera because it's <laughs> over the keyboard and I just peeled my orange so that I'll eat it when we're done. Yes. Uh, it's a Trader Joe's salad or leftovers. Kevin, that's um, so bad. You're not supposed to eat over. It's so it's like a rule at my office that I if I catch people eating at their computer, I will make them get up and go eat somewhere else. But yeah, as, well, we do it a lot here. Yeah, I mean, you as as the person who's representing me, I appreciate how dedicated you are to your work, but girl, Go sit, well, go, occasionally, go sit outside. You're in San Diego. I know. No, no, that can't happen. We uh, fool ourselves into believing we'll be able to read and um, yeah. eat. What is um? What are your hours? Like your office hours, or what are like when are you working nonstop? Or you are pretty set on you're available from this time to this time. No, I'm pretty much available um, for better or for worse. And for me, it, it's just my style. But normally, I'm at the desk at about between 7.30 and 8 in the morning after I walk the dogs and make coffee and feed them and do all that stuff. You know, New York is already rolling by then. Yeah. 
My last question is, what time do you go to bed? Depending on whether I'm working late or if I'm watching, you know, Downton Abbey or something, <laughs> between, probably between 10 and 11. Okay. So you're not getting a ton of sleep for someone who wakes up so early. Do you not need much to survive? No, I guess I don't. And I think that's an age-related thing. I just mm. need less now. How interesting. I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I sleep way more than you. I'm like a toddler compared to you. In my dream world, I am asleep by 9.30. Yeah, no, that doesn't happen. <laughs> but I always, I'm, I always read when I get into bed. And sometimes that lasts for multiple pages. And here I'll plug another off, author. Yes, I'm reading Laura do. Griffin's new manuscript. And I'm reading it uh, on my Kindle app, actually. But that just kept me up way too late last night. Oh, well, that's good. Yeah. Has she, she's, uh, she's been a client for a while. Yeah. She was my very first romance client. What? That's so cool. Yeah. Well, how incredible then after all of this time that her books can still keep you so interested and intrigued. That's incredible. Oh, I've read every single one of her books. That's so awesome. I think too, um, having spoken with, I've met with editors now in the course of my career or different agents. It's always shocking to me. Because I'm such a book nerd that when I sit with people in this industry, I just assume we're about to have the greatest like book club conversation ever. So sitting yeah. down with people in the industry and you ask, what, what are you loving to read? What have you read lately? What have you read this year? And people don't have an answer. They can't, yeah. you know, like, oh, I don't really read other people. I'm, I'm so confused by that because I don't understand how you could do this if you don't love books. Right. Well, and what happens, I know on the agent side, at least for me, is that I, 90% of what I read, maybe 85, is my client. Is for work. clients, of course. Yeah. Because we'll do a two book deal, for example, or a three book deal. And I will have always read the material on the first book that we sold in, mm -hmm. but book two yeah. isn't you know, due for a year and a half. Yeah. So I, I like to try and read and keep up as much as I can. And I don't read absolutely everything, mm -hmm. but I wish I could. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. also like the shoemaker has no shoes. So you're spending yeah. all of your time reading for other people. The idea of reading something non-client related for yourself is probably not that easy to access. Time wise. Yeah, it, it just, it, that's right. It happens in those few minutes that I read before I turn out the light at night, um, Sometimes, you know, I've, I've got another manuscript on my Kindle, not manuscript, book that I bought that's not client, but Laura Griffin bumped it and um, I'm not sad about that. But, yeah. you know, I do I do buy other works and mm -hmm. uh, and you'll see me occasionally comment on Twitter that I read so and so's book and loved it and they're not a client. Yeah. You know, I love I love to tell people when I love their work because I know how much that means to of my clients. Of course. Absolutely. It's everything. I mean, especially com coming from someone who reads so much and who knows the industry, I'm sure that's such a big deal. I also think it gives validity to your place in this field. So, so many people, when they get on social media, allow me for a moment to make a social media rant, uh, who work in a particular industry are only hawking their product and their clients and their thing. And it loses ground with the people who do follow you because I think you're just selling to me. We as right. consumers think you're, you just want to sell. This isn't, you're not in this for love of the book or because you have a strong opinion outside of what 
you know, might make you money. So um, one of the things I dig about you is that it's not just your clients who you're promoting. It's a love of reading, which is as it should be. Right. Well, thank you so, so much. I'm sure that anyone who's listening who, A, is interested in hearing about um, publishing in general, who has a dream of writing a book, um, is experiencing such a wealth of information from what you've shared today, but also um, I know for a fact that somewhere there's a mom listening who's going to take some um, heart in the things that you said about being a working mom and how incredible your daughters are. And and quite honestly, um, our kids, God willing, will never know another reality besides what we are as a mom. So there's not another standard to live up to. There's only the way your family does it. Um, I feel like that is such an incredible wisdom for everyone. So thank you so much for sitting with me today and answering questions. I know how busy you are uh, and I really appreciate it. Thank you. It was fun. Uh Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Hey guys, if you like this episode, I hope you will consider subscribing to the Deus podcast on iTunes, sharing it with your friends and showing some love on social media for a newbie show like mine. Those reviews are everything. Thanks to our producer, Allison Cohen, our sound engineer, Jack Noble, and our sound editor, Andrew Weller. To stay in touch with all things Deus, you can check out thechicsite.com or follow me on social media. I am Ms. Rachel Hollis on every single platform. Most importantly, I hope you heard something today that inspires you. I'll see you next week.